Academy Radio in collaboration with Mahazep Radio. Aridity Lines Episode 5 Violence, Climate Change and Shifting Shorelines You're listening to Aridity Lines, a podcast series invoking the forms of local ecological knowledges that delicately tread the porous borders between bodies of land and bodies of water around the Mediterranean Sea. By scientific definition, an aridity line is a line that connects points that share the same average amount of annual rainfall. We are taking this drifting threshold that traverses times and human-made borders as a magnifying lens through which to read through the social, environmental, cultural, and geopolitical impacts of climate change. Aridity Lines, commissioned by TVA21 Academy and co-produced with Radio Ma'azif, has been conceived by Barbara Kasabekia and your host today, Reem Shadid, as part of the program The Current Three, Mediterraneans, Thus Waves Come in Pairs After Etel Adnan. In this final episode of Aridity Lines, we wanted to bring our discussion to a close in full circle by going back to one of the grounding inspirations for the podcast, its title, The Aridity Line which is defined as 200 mm of annual rainfall below which the desert starts and is a bioclimatic demarcation that is moving fast across the Mediterranean region, a hotspot of global climate warming. The interconnected expansion of desertification, land degradation and drought is an evident marker of this process. My guest today is Eyal Weissman, Professor of Spatial and Visual Cultures at Goldsmiths University of London, where in 2005 he founded the Centre of Research Architecture. He is also the founding director of Forensic Architecture. In this episode, we take a look at Weissman's work on the aridity line in his seminal 2015 book, The Conflict Shoreline, where he looks at environmental colonialism and its entanglement with other structures of violence and oppression. Wiseman investigates the relationship between colonization and climate change at the threshold of the Negev Desert in occupied Palestine and contextualizes it within a larger network of violence at these shorelines, as he calls them, along which climate change and political conflict are deeply and dangerously linked, like they are also in Libya, Syria, and Yemen, to name a few. We hope to hear from him how his research evolved and can be understood today, under what has been a protracted state of climate and political crisis, probing the question of how to trace something which has been shifting over a long period of time and is still shifting so rapidly that we seem unable to grasp it. What could we learn from the aridity line in order to adapt to the future? We also reflect together on some of the tools and forms of knowledges, both scientific and ancestral or indigenous, that forensic architecture has been using and how these have evolved. Throughout the series, we have centered many voices from the Mediterranean region who have addressed the importance of local ecological knowledges in learning ways of living and thinking with and through aridity and cycles of water and their economies, and heard from guests of practices and alliances emerging from these narratives and relationships. We hope that with this episode, we will bring us back together to our point of departure in order to try to read our current ecological conditions in other ways and by using unconventional methods and signifiers. Our deepest thanks to all our listeners. 
Thank you so much, Eyal, for accepting this invitation. Uh, your work on the aridity line and the conflict shoreline has been um, seminal in the conceptualization of this podcast. So I was hoping that we can start today with a brief introduction or summary of this research um, to our listeners. Well, I think that starting 2015, which is already seven years ago, uh, we've been working, and when I say we, I mean um, forensic architecture uh, very broadly, um, but it's a project I've been also invested in very personally. It's a project that is very personal for me. Uh, a connection with um, uh, Palestinian Bedouin family uh, called the Al-Turis uh, and another one, the Al-Ukbis, um, that uh, are connected to an extremely unique um, area of the Nakab Desert, um, a little bit north of Bir Saba or Bir Sheva. Uh, it's called El Arakib, um, gentle hills, um, a little seasonal stream. Actually, if you are there looking around, you can almost mistake being in a kind of uh, an undeveloped, uh, very little developed area. Uh, you don't really see the road. Um, yes, from some perspective, you, you could see um, the next uh, Jewish colonies that are being built there. Uh, but really a piece of... Um, a little piece of paradise uh, within that, um, what is called the battle over the Nakab or the Negev, uh, as the Israelis call it, uh, which is a very vicious campaign that Israel is waging since uh, many years, arguably since the Al Nakba and possibly even before, to uproot Bedouin Palestinians from that part. Uh, of the Nakab. And that is, um, you know, part, partially is, is just like um, any other part of the Al Nakba that um, Jewish uh, settlers and later with the Foundation of Israel, Israelis are, um, you know, seeking to control the land, seeking to expel Palestinians from, from areas that they want to settle or develop in, in any other ways. The particular thing that really attracted me to Al-Arakib is that the families, the Al-Turi and the Al-Ukbis, were actually exercising the right of return, that is, going back to places from which they were first displaced um, and Maybe just for clarification, I would say that the displacement in the in the Nakab Desert were really not happening in '48, but immediately after, uh, in a kind of very uh, less known part of um, of the Nakba uh, that happened after the establishment of Israel, really at the very late '40s, '49, all the way to '50, 1953. Um, using aircrafts, uh, using raids, uh, torching of homes and, and tents. Uh, the Israeli military was actually expelling 
Uh, altogether, about 100,000 Palestinian Bedouins from uh, from the Al Nakab. Uh, most of them went to Egypt and Jordan uh, at the time. Um, but the Al Ukbis and the Al Turis were actually returning continuously to the areas from which they were expelled. And that thing was very unique because uh, those of us who are in uh, the anti-colonial struggle uh, in Palestine, um, think of the right of return almost as an abstract right, as something that is future-oriented, something to uh, that is sometimes synonymous with a concept or idea of decolonization. Uh, it is something to strive at, not something that is actually being practiced. And it is the first time that I saw communities, uh, you know, those, those families are sometimes very large that are, you know, like communities, um, you know, villages uh, of uh, extended families returning precisely to the place where they were expelled from. They were returned, uh, they returned and they were expelled. And when I mean expelled, night raids of the Israeli police and other security agencies, again, torching of tents, destroying of homes, uh, sealing of wells, the same things that we've seen in the, in the 50s happening, you know, in the, in the early 2000s still and all the way today. Um, and the village of Al-Arakib altogether, I think, has been displaced and rebuilt about 200 times. I don't have the, the precise count because it kind of changes every week almost. Um, and then I was very interested in that struggle. Of course, um, a lot of it through uh, presence, simply spending time there, staying there uh, for days, for nights, uh, experiencing and speaking and learning uh, from the community about what it is that uh, they're experiencing and what, what it is that uh, we could do and we could work on together. And I remember the first time that I actually plotted that um, the location of that village on uh, a rain map, um, on a meteorological map showing the uh, the average amount of rain per year and i've seen something very bizarre and i've seen something that you know was really the beginning uh, of that project of the conflict shoreline i saw that the dot and think about it just simply as a dot on the scale of a map that has the entire palestine on it was landing on exactly the point where a spectrum of blue uh, areas, and you know, in, in rain maps you have, you can imagine, um, you know, if you go in, a, in the north of the country, uh, from Lebanon downwards, uh, you have kind of like darker blue, they are about 800 millimeter rain per year. And you go towards the center of Palestine and you have six or five hundred millimeter rain per year you go further south and at some point it goes into 200 millimeter rain per year and at this moment the cartographical convention 
no longer paints those areas in blue, but switches it to some kind of beigey, yellowy spectrum. So there's a moment in which the color changes. Blue, a gradient of blues flips over to a gradient of yellows. And the dot of where Al-Arakib is, is exactly there. And I was asking myself, is this something that is related between the struggle of that village, of those families, um, between the fact that they, that Al-Arakib is the frontier of struggle and resistance to Israeli settler colonialism in that part, and the rain uh, map uh, on it. And then I discovered uh, very interesting things uh, while looking at the history, but not history of, you know, as we conceive it, of processes, history of, you know, uh, wars or, or political processes, etc., but the history of the weather. Um, and I have seen that when, when you think about the history of the weather, you want to think about two things. One, we tend to think about the weather as something, or the climate rather, as something that is cyclical, no? seasonally, year on year, uh, there are cyclical patterns. Uh, but of course, there is year on year pattern in which um, that area where the blue turns into, or to, into this kind of like yellow, meaning that's the beginning of the desert, um, shifts. It moves from, it moves some years, it is going further north, and some years it is going further south. And in different periods, we had different climates. And I was asking myself, what's the relation between that quote unquote natural cycles and how they mobilize political processes and political imaginaries uh, that go with them, political ideologies that go with them, uh, if you like. How do we define the threshold of the desert? What is the relation between that definition and legal realities? And all of a sudden, you know, a kind of a whole world opened in front of my eyes in which I was writing the climate back into the history of Palestine and into the history of Zionist colonization of it, uh, and trying to understand the entire history of um, settler colonialism, particularly in the desert, but not only there, from a climatic uh, perspective. And, um, and, and the tool to do that was what is called the aridity line. That place where the spectrum of blue turned into a spectrum of oranges. Um, the aridity line is defined as the line uh, under which you can no longer cultivate wheat, which is already an interesting question. And the question is first, who defines it? Who is there to define where the desert begins? Who is there to define that the aridity line is the average of all you know, measure, measured years, and uh, the average is that line, and, uh, and that is uh, the beginning of the desert. I, you can almost kind of like 
imagine yourself putting one foot on one side of this line and another on the other side of the line and you are you know one foot in the desert and one foot in the in the zone uh, obviously things are more, not not that complicated not that easy you know in reality we see a very slow very gentle and sometimes imperceptible uh, to the naked eye uh, changes in vegetation, changes in flora and fauna, uh, and changes in cultural of habitation, changes in culture of cultivation uh, that are that are much more uh, gradual than than happening across that line. But together with the at the time when the uh, you know sort of the British and French took over the area that they called the Orient when they took it over from the Ottoman uh, Empire. Uh, you know that this time was very closely associated to development in cartography, etc. And one of the things that they needed and they wanted to mark up and, and to, to understand was where the desert began. And they relied upon the research of one a scientist, a German-Russian scientist called Vladimir Koppen, who took one type of wheat, kind of like a, a wheat that is, you know, now we're talking at the time of the uh, Russian occupation and war in Ukraine. And uh, we know that one of the most common types of wheat that grows there is the einkorn wheat. And um, he was he was measuring that particular wheat, einkorn, which in German means one one seed, if you like, um, and and realized that under two hundred millimeter rain per year, that kind of wheat cannot grow. And the assumption that he's made is that if you cannot grow wheat, there could not be settlements. Because the history of the very idea of permanent settlement, the idea of the agricultural revolution, if you like, the Neolithic revolution, when, when humanity started shifting from nomadism and, and hunter-gatherers to permanent settlers, was the idea of cultivation. So for Köppen, 200 millimeter was a line between, above it is an area that could be cultivated, and if it could be cultivated, it could be settled, it could be permanent inhabitation, there could be law, there could be control, there could be the state, there could be the police there. And the area under it is a kind of a no man's land, a kind of an area that is owned by everybody and nobody, an area where there's no property laws, uh, an area where indeed the Palestinian Bedouins in, in, in the Nakab uh, were living. And what Israel did with that line was to weaponize it, is to say that line is like a legal knife. It cut Palestine in half. In fact, pretty much in half, pretty much half of Palestine lies under the aridity line and half over and says that in all those areas south of that aridity line, all the area marked yellow and um, orange on this um, 
uh, meteorological maps, there will be no property rights, meaning all this land belongs to the state. These are state lands. And as Israel is the state and has taken over sovereignty from the British, they've taken over the sovereignty from the Ottomans, uh, this land belongs to Israel, meaning to the Jewish collective in, uh, in Israel. And then Israel is using it for the military and for other uh, purposes, such as uh, settlement and nuclear facilities and, and polluting industries, etc. But then I became very interested in this line to, it's almost like we start from Al-Arakib, a village that has, you know, that sit on land, but their feet are in the water. You know, on this threshold, you, you told me that you're speaking from Dahab now. I can imagine you sitting on those mats between like water and land. Um, this is like where Arakib is, no, like on land, but the feet are in the water. Uh, but that that line, that shoreline, you can travel along it all the way uh, westwards, and you would from Palestine through Gaza, you would travel through the north of Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. Um, and then it kind of disappears more or less into the ocean. And on the other direction, it goes from Palestine to Jordan, to Syria, to Iraq, to Iran, to Pakistan, Afghanistan frontier, and then disappears into uh, the mountain ranges there. Uh, and the question is, can we travel along that line? Can we actually talk about politics not as that which is divided by the states and the borders that it is making, but through that kind of transversal movement that cuts across different states, but there's something similar in all of them, in all those communities from uh, Northern Morocco to uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, that are living at the threshold of the desert. What is, what is in common, how they're experiencing climate change and how that environmental condition mobilizes their history, their struggle, the repression, types and forms of colonialism that go along it, uh, et cetera. And there's a lot more to say about that, but maybe I stop here. Okay, so now that aridification or desertification is moving way past the thresholds of deserts and it has become increasingly difficult to draw certain lines, as you said. The relationship between terrestrial aridity lines and marine liquid borders are getting closer, and we are witnessing the Mediterranean as a sea undergo a process of desertification in terms of wildlife, let's say. So can you talk here about this relationship between terrestrial aridity and its extension into the sea? Yeah, no, this is a very good question because uh, obviously, you know, I've been thinking about it also since the books that I've written on it, etc. Um, so I, I, I think there's two ways to, to actually look at the pressures, uh, the political environmental pressures that I'm put on that line. On the one hand, um, the Christian and to a certain extent the Jewish um, colonization of the green side of this line coming to it coming at it from the north attempted always to push that line south southwards meaning to say that um 
um, we can make the desert green by pushing that uh, uh, line further into the desert. I, we can cultivate, we can colonize bits of the desert uh, and uh, using artificial irrigation, using uh, deep wells and all sorts of other hydrological techniques, we could actually um, claim that um, a certain, you know, within the kind of Zionist myth and to a certain extent also within the Christian colonization of, uh, you know, sort of Italian and French colonization of North Africa uh, is argued as a return. Oh, the, the Italians returned to Libya, you know, in a very similar way to Zionists. They were finding Romans, Roman ruins. They said that used to be uh, part of the coastline of the Mare Nostrum, no, the, our sea, the Mediterranean, that is like a, a kind of a lake within the Roman Empire. Uh, we're going back to, uh, to places that effectively belong to us culturally, um, that has fallen in disrepair, that the Muslim occupation and uh, hundreds of years of, of, uh, of uh, Muslim countries' control of that area or empires uh, have, have led to desertification. And that the coming of the people from the north to the south would bring with them the environment and the weather that they're used to. Meaning, in a very simple way, colonization was thought of as climate change. So colonization is not only going, grabbing hold of territory, settling it perhaps, or extracting uh, other values from it uh, in returning uh, home, uh, but the occupation had to be uh, completed with a complete transformation of the natural environment. Uh, that is to say, they bring with the weather with them. No, it's like this funny thing that you know. Sometimes you know, I come from London and fly anywhere. I said, "Oh, you brought the rain with you," but it's almost like that kind of thing, you know, in which um, the Zionist wanted to um, take over Palestine, uh, but they had a problem. You know, it was too hot. Uh, they were not used to that, or some of them, the Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe uh, in particular. I'm not speaking about the Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews that were there and, you know, lived with Arabs for, for hundreds of years. But, you know, they wanted to come and, and to transform also the environments. And there was various botanists and, um, that, that had ideas about how to reduce the temperature and increase the rainfall in Palestine by planting all sorts of trees and forests, etc., uh, or things like that. So the kind of idea of making the desert bloom uh, that is, you know, very, very familiar Zionist myth and very, very familiar myth of Italian colonization and very familiar myth of French colonization of uh, North Africa. Uh, it's not only associated with, uh, with the Jewish uh, Zionist uh, colonization, uh, is one can be translated as colonialism is climate change. So 
Here we have a force trying to push the desert south. On the other hand, the very attempt to push the desert south using artificial irrigation, mucking about, if you like, with you know, existing hydrological systems, uh, industrializing, uh, etc., using monocrop agriculture had the adverse effect. It had the effect of desertification, meaning the desert was going towards the north. So think about those two massive forces from the north to the south, colonizers coming, pushing from the south to the north, climate change is pushing. And between those two massive forces um, in the Nakab, it's the Bedouin Palestinians, but all along the line, there are other indigenous and local people that are trapped between climate change on the one hand and colonization on the other. So the line becomes very dynamic. That line becomes something like a diagram and its location every year is, is or year on year is really a kind of a, you can read the political forces and you could read also local politics along it, you know, the Syrian one, um, you know, Assad's uh, sort of like Assad, the father from the late 70s and 80s attempt to uh, cultivate uh, the Syrian desert led to aggravated massive uh, droughts in the area uh, that themselves contributed to um, the food riot that themselves might have contributed to uh, the protests and uh, later the civil war of the early teens, uh, 20 teens. So, you know, it, it, it's articulated differently everywhere along that line. But uh, in a sense, this line is a kind of a, a political diagram. And in fact, I think the most important one today, I think that we shouldn't concentrate our politics, thinking politically, according to those kind of jigsaw puzzles, the borders uh, on the maps and on the atlases that we are looking at, we're very used to think in terms of surrender our political horizon to, um, to those lines, to those maps, um, write separately about Jordan, about Syria, about Palestine, about this and that. Uh, and in fact, start writing history differently start writing a kind of a deep and long environmental history and understand maybe uh, other things that are much more important about our region and how, how to live uh, in it and how to live together in it. I know that you've spoken about this previously, but I think within kind of the strong legal framework that um, forensic architecture's um, work operates in and knowing this kind of discrepancy or gap between legal frameworks and facts on the ground, it would be good to hear from you how you have incorporated local knowledges in the work um, that you do generally. Um, and I guess, you know, just asking about where the place of these narratives and knowledges are within this work. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, the, the reference for thinking about the Mediterranean, I mean, we cannot start without Fernand Podel, no, and kind of the, yeah. uh, and uh, the sort of like the long term and the long durée of history, uh, etc. But I think that there's a, the, the, the slight uh, difference that I think we need to bear on that great contribution to historiography is to say that 
um, there is no permanent cycles um, within the Mediterranean, that the area is transforming and transforming, um, you know, in an irreversible way. It's transforming in a way that we cannot actually see it anymore as cyclical relation between, you know, the valleys, the forest, the, the hills and the, and the sea, uh, etc. And those kind of like permanent trade routes that connect them. Uh, but need to start looking at a very chaotic system of acceleration that, you know, that we just basically don't know where it's going to go. Because, you know, the kind of transformation, the rhetorical transformation from climate change to climate chaos has been very important. Um, rather than saying climate change is something that feels like gradual, and feels cumulative, um, processual, uh, we start seeing, or even saying global warming, no? this kind of uh, term I think that I hear less um, now in the sort of public discussion about this, these issues, the climate chaos kind of throws at us um, kind of local manifestations of global problems uh, that are radical, that are unpredictable and that interact with uh, local political tensions in a, in a kind of uh, very intense and usually in a way that aggravates them um, very much. The, um, it, a lot of this is, is actually registered in the sea in, in, the, in the huge quantities of uh, of soil that is uh, dragged into it, uh, of sand uh, that kind of obscure and destroys life in it. And this is even before talking about any other sort of pollutant that are being put directly at sea. This is simply speaking about the relation of, um, um, you know, desertification in the Sahel or in the Northern uh, Sahara in, um, uh, in, in sort of like Northwest uh, Africa coastline uh, is creating enormous amount of sandstorm. Think of them as kind of like continents almost, countries, landscapes in the air. The amount of the quantities of sand that is flying westwards across the Atlantic, that, you know, that every year on year, there's more desertification, more areas are falling arid, and more of that sand is rising up to the air. My friend Adrian Dahoud has made uh, great work uh, on that. But the quantities of that are entire mountains, entire landscape that are becoming not like ground-based, landscapes, but aerial landscape. They exist in the air. They go up, you know, thousands of feet into the air before they land anywhere in, in the North American continent or, or elsewhere. Um, and affecting on the way, uh, transforming, in fact, um, cycles of migrations of um, uh, fish and other uh, marine life uh, with them. And, and that kind of like way of thinking, thinking big, thinking the politics in that way, you know, this sort of like, it's, it's, just, it's just incredible to bring into the, our kind of political imagination, that idea of like 
mountains going, turning from solid to gases almost, rising into the air in this kind of cloud of sand that is moving, migrating to America, uh, I think is, is really incredible. And, and, and the imagination of, of a kind of the planetary imagination that comes with it and thinking very hard about the role of, of politics in aggravating and accelerating that, the historical role of colonialism, uh, of capitalist economies, etc., is is uh, really important within that context. I think that kind of interscalar process, like moving across scales, is the demand of our present very much. So that you know we need to, and in forensic architecture, we almost made a kind of a methodology, or our ethos is 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 working. Uh, across scales. We, we often take very specific cases, cases of particular families that ask us, we always respond only to commissions from um, people at the forefront of conflict or state repression. Uh, they would perhaps ask us for local, um, for analysis in something that they're using, a legal struggle that they're embedded in or an advocacy struggle or in otherwise any kind of uh, uh, information that is necessary for social and political movements. Uh, and we would provide that. We'd undertake ferocious research into the minutia of, um, of details. We'll dive into the molecular level of an event. But it is absolutely essential for us that out of the micro scale, we open up and we start seeing the world in which that incident, this unique uh, instance, this unique collision of forces, this unique um, act of displacement in a desert, this unique shooting of um, police murder of a black man uh, in the US, in the UK, uh, or uh, Israeli police killing of Palestinians, etc., are placed within a long-term political analysis not simply as a manifestation of a certain type of cruelty, but as an entry point into a matrix of references that you can actually travel along and find the long duration in a micro scale. Because without doing the work on Arakib, without actually engaging deeply in understanding the territory they live in and looking at the land, looking at what grows there, experiencing it, living it, listening to oral histories of, of life on this very fragile frontier between the desert and so on, uh, on the ingenious kind of agricultural technique that uh, those families were using in order to make uh, a life out of very limited quantities of water, that sort of minimal, gentle, uh, way of life that is leaving so little traces on the environment. Without understanding deeply that, there would be no possibility for us, together with them, um, unpacking the kind of the long term, the environmental, the global, the planetary scale um, transformations and the deep history uh, that that we are doing. So, at the same time. Do the ferocious kind of specific work, 
but link it. And the work of linking across scales is not easy. You need to make connection. You need to build lines. You need to actually make alliances with other groups, with other communities, perhaps with other experts, in order to kind of create a world uh, in which every incident is nested. Thank you so much for speaking across scales. I mean, you've laid um, the ground for my last question for today. As you know, most models for interpretation of present conditions and future change are predictive, speculative. Um, they derive from the ability of artificial intelligence to detect and interpret emergent patterns in tons of data. So if we look at the aridity line as one of such patterns and given its geopolitical location or standpoint, um, what can it help us understand about the near future in the Mediterranean and beyond? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think that what, what, it, what it means to me that any struggle, any um, anti-colonial struggle has to bring in the environment in it. It has to be about water and has to be about landscape and it has to be about the desert lines and, 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 and the sea, etc. We need to bring the materiality of the ground that we that the struggle is undertaken on sometimes we even forget that you know that struggle obviously is such a tragic uh, and ongoing dimensions in in ruining so many people's lives uh, and and we kind of forget the land itself uh, and i think when you look at the land uh, not the landscape the land um, it has its own vocabulary. It has its own fragility. It has its own beauty sometimes of what is left of it. Um, and, you know, kind of letting that land rise into the foreground uh, within this sort of political struggles and debates that we're having is absolutely essential. Because if if you're like me and you believe in 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 a shared space, uh, if you believe that you know we need to live in as equals within that environment, uh, the land is a good place to start. Care for it, a care for the land, a care for the environment, a care for its um, natural systems, uh, the care in which we look at it, document it, and live in it uh, is really essential. And and I'm I'm just I'm just hoping for for the day in which we could actually foreground that that reality and of course many people like Rajesh Hade and others are doing fabulous work uh, on environmental conditions in that in that way and i think that this is really a place to start Barbara Kasavecchia and Reem Shadid would like to sincerely thank the TBA21 Academy team Marcus Raymond and Maria Montero Sierra as well as the Radio Ma'azif team, Ma'an Abu Talib, and special thanks to Mosh Air and Jinan Shaya. That was the fifth episode of Aridity Lines. Special thanks to our guest, Eyal Wiseman. Aridity Lines is commissioned by TBA21 Academy and co-produced with Radio Ma'azif. It was conceived by Reem Shadid and Barbara Kasavecchia as part of the current three, Mediterraneans, thus, waves come in pairs after Etel Adnan. Edited and hosted by Reem Shadid and Barbara Kasavecchia. Introduction and credits voiceover, Jinan Shaya. Sound editor, Mosher. 
produced by Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.